0: Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Each week we take a closer look at the business issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. While much of the attention this week is correctly paid to COP26 and the push for global action on climate change, there was a less discussed meeting of world leaders going on in Rome. On Sunday, the leaders of the G20 nations formally endorsed changes to international tax laws to crack down on profit shifting by multinational companies. The move is designed to end the race to the bottom on corporate taxation, and create new rules to capture the digital era. So what's in the deal? And will a 15% minimum floor be enough to grow global tax revenue after a long year of downturn? Let's meet our panel.
1: Thanks, Toby. My name is Roman Lannis. I am an Associate Professor with the Accounting Discipline Group at UTS and I do most of my research in uh, tax avoidance and so on and so forth.
2: Hi, I'm Miranda Stewart. I'm a professor at Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne, and I have an honorary role at the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute forford School of Public Policy at the ANU. I work on a whole range of areas of tax law and policy with a particular focus at the moment on international tax.
0: Why don't we start with a bit of an explanation of What's just happened at the G20 and the significance of these world leaders coming together and saying that we're going to have a new, uh, I believe it's called a new inclusive framework on base erosion and profit sharing. And I might get uh, you, Miranda, to uh, start us off with a bit of an explanation, if you don't mind.
2: I guess what we just had is the G20 prime ministers. And before that, this month we had the G20 finance ministers and heads of reserve banks have their meeting. And in both of those meetings, the G20 endorsed and supported the project uh, that has been ongoing at the OECD with a, a broad group of countries that has been called the Inclusive Framework. So the inclusive framework apparently includes 140 countries and jurisdictions. Uh, The jurisdictions is a bit odd, but it it includes things ranging from the European Union, of course, multiple countries, down to tiny tax haven territories that are dependents on other countries. And the inclusive framework has... Uh, released a statement that represents a consensus decision by I think it's 136 out of 140 countries, so not every single country but almost all of them in the inclusive framework, that proposes two different aspects to reform the international tax system and these have been called Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Partly, they refer to endorsing uh, what has been called in the public debate a global minimum tax. We can explain these in, in in two different ways, Toby. But that's the kind of the general agreement that has been made so far, and it builds on, as you say, uh, nearly a decade worth of work called the Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project or the BEPS project of the OECD uh, that's intended to address international tax avoidance mostly by multinational enterprises.
0: So this is a decade of work then, a a decade of work moving towards, again, something that in the common parlance is a global minimum tax rate for corporations. Could you explain a little bit more what the two pillars are?
2: Yes, it builds on a decade, in fact, probably more than that. Roman will know, uh, you know, there's a much longer history behind this BEPS project, but certainly the most recent developments are sort of arising out of probably the last five years or so of work and they are directed particularly at taxing very large global multinational enterprises that uh, have high value intangibles, intellectual property, mobile intangibles, and digital activities. So uh, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 are aimed at kind of taxing multinationals in the global digital economy. Very briefly, Pillar 1 is focused at creating a new taxing right for countries where consumers are, users or consumers of the very largest multinationals. That is almost like the top 100 multinational enterprises in the world. That includes the big digital companies like Facebook and Apple and Google, but it also includes some other very large companies. And what that does is it will allow the market country where consumers are to tax a share of the kind of super profit or global profit of those very large companies. The second pillar, what is known as pillar two, is a global base eroding tax or global minimum tax. Uh, the inclusive framework consensus has agreed at a 15% rate. Uh, this applies to large multinationals, but not just the top 100, with global turnover over 750,000 euros globally, which is large but not enormous, and it will ensure that if those companies pay less than an effective tax rate of 15% in a jurisdiction around the world, like a tax haven or a low-tax country, then another country can levy tax to bring the minimum rate up to 15% for the group as a whole.
1: And just very quickly to add, Uh, Miranda's quite correct. There are two so-called pillars. Why are the two pillars? Because it's actually quite intuitive in terms of what's going on or the avenues used to avoid tax. The first one is source of revenue. One of the bigger problems, and we've had this problem in Australia where companies booking their sales or tax income or or revenues, which they make in Australia, for example, they actually book them elsewhere through entities in other or low tax jurisdictions. So, you know, the tax office never even gets to see that at all. We did in Australia try to eliminate that with MAL or the multinational anti-avoidance law. And my research shows that that has fixed it to some degree, not, not completely. And again, it'll be interesting to see what happens with MAL as well. That's pillar one, but that's a very difficult one because I'm sure Miranda will tell you as well that relates to permanent establishment issues and so on and so forth. So and they've actually I think pillar 1 has been I believe it's been delayed. I mean they had to include both because they kind of go together but pillar 1 I think is a more more of a long-term thing if it ever happens because it's very very difficult to actually agree on that because you're essentially trying to divide between countries where the revenues of a particular company with a thousand subsidiaries in just about every country on the planet, you know, how the revenue is going to be divided. Not very simple at all. From a numbers perspective, it's easy, but I think legally it's a nightmare, double tax treaties come into it. So that one I think has been left for a while. But the second pillar, as as Miranda said, I still think there's going to be a lot of issues there and we don't know exactly how it's going to work. There's a lot of mechanisms that they have suggested there. But we haven't seen any legislation from any country, certainly not in Australia. The Americans have said, Janet Yellen said, I think they're going to have some legislation ready for the US budget at the end of the year. But the devil will be in the detail, obviously. But that's a fairly straightforward one, essentially. They're going to calculate an ETR, which is an effective tax rate for certain jurisdictions, and essentially compare that ETR to the 15%. And the difference supposedly is going to be taxed by, you know, the ultimate parent, wherever that is. And they've actually stated it'll be an ETR calculated from the financial reports. And those are very noisy proxies when it comes to tax avoidance, very noisy. The OECD does state it's going to be adjusted. What's it going to be adjusted for? I can tell you there's a thousand things you can adjust it for. So there's a lot, there's a thousand problems. There's a thousand problems. And and even if legislation does come out, I, I, I don't know, I can't see 136 or even 10 countries actually coming up with something that's workable and is consistent with existing tax treaties.
0: So let's get into this a little bit further. Roman, why do you think this is being hailed as something that is as historic development?
1: Well, to be honest, I, I, I don't I don't think it is historic in that sense and I might just take over a little from Miranda and give you a bit of a numbers accounting perspective on it. The reason it's not historic is because this was actually a US initiative which came out initially from Treasury in the US, Janet Yellen and some of Biden's economic advisors and that's how it started. That's not to say that, you know, A lot of other countries weren't interested. But this is definitely a US initiative, and that needs to be understood. There are a lot of political, obviously, consequences here. The other issue is you may say, well, why? You know, why suddenly now the Americans are are sort of saying these things? Because (laughs) they certainly would be for something like this five to ten years ago, despite, as Miranda said, the OECD work has been going on for decades with respect to BEPS, uh, not just last 10 years. There are two main reasons. Basically, of course, US is running huge budget deficits and Biden with uh, or the Democrats with their multi-trillion dollar spending bills, you know, they've got a big hole there. And of course, Trump reduced the corporate tax rate in the US a couple of years ago with the hope of actually encouraging uh, American or US multinationals to pay more overall, but that hasn't really happened. So essentially, you know, the Americans needed additional revenue because all around the world, including Australia, the burden of tax revenues has shifted to individuals from corporates. And that's not a very good thing, obviously. And a lot of it is due to tax avoidance. It's as simple as that. And you know what? The American tax system has actually encouraged that through permanent reinvestment, as they call it. And again, so that's the question. You know, everyone's known about this. It's been there. Why now? The main thing is, I think there's been some estimates. There's probably one to two trillion dollars. And I would say half of that is U.S. multinationals that is underpaid in tax. And up until now, the American government has been quite happy about that. They've been okay because it belongs to the U.S. companies, it belongs to U.S. shareholders, and that that's all right. For the Americans, that's not such a bad thing. So why this year in particular? Because the trigger to me or the final straw is because if it weren't the Americans who were going to sort of get their holds on that $2 trillion that's undertaxed, it would have been the Europeans and the Australians because the Europeans... For many years have started talking about so-called digital taxes, diverted profits taxes, which we already have in Australia. The UK has. If the Americans didn't do something, that one or two trillion that's been undertaxed, other countries would have taxed it. And you know, the Americans don't like these things. They protested for years with the French digital tax, UK Google tax, the diverted profits tax. So I think that was probably the final straw. And it's obvious because part of the agreement is when this thing is introduced, the digital taxes will be eliminated. It'll be interesting to see what happens to our diverted profits tax because that's kind of related to that, what will happen to the UK Google tax, and I think there's a few other European countries that have introduced it. That's still a bit unclear. So it's very important to bring in this context. I'm not saying it's a bad thing because without the Americans driving this probably would never Succeeded anyway. Not that it will, even with the Americans driving it. From a legal perspective, it's going to be a nightmare, with 136 countries introducing separate legislation about all this. This is before even discussing the accounting issues involved, numerous legal issues, double tax treaties, etc. But that's the context, and I think that's important.
0: There's a lot to unpack in that answer. Maybe the uh, hype around it is less than deserved. Is that the cut and thrust I'm picking up on?
1: Roman? 100%. 100%. This is not the first thing that the G20 has suggested. I remember the one in Australia five, six years ago, which is actually related to the Pandora Papers and the Panama Papers, was a public beneficial ownership registry. Where's that gone? You know, I keep on writing about Pandora Papers every year, just about, you know, it's the same old thing. And I think this one is the most difficult. I
2: just jump in
1: there. I totally agree with Roman that it's difficult?
2: I, I don't, I'm not sure that I, uh, probably I agree that the, the revenue outcomes are going to be less exciting than they are projected to be or, or implied by the idea that there might be some global minimum tax at 15% suddenly seems like the world's changed and, you know, we've suddenly got this this obvious revenue collection, but I do see it as somewhat revolutionary with all the difficulties attached. It really is the first time that countries have come together to essentially establish a new kind of international tax. So pillar one is to be agreed in a multilateral treaty Even multilateral treaties in the tax world, Rome will know, are fairly recent and not that common still in terms of substantive taxing rights, um, because mostly countries negotiate bilaterally with each other or, or make their own unilateral rules. So we're going to have a multilateral convention that kind of creates this new taxing jurisdiction for the country of the user or the consumer of the global multinationals goods. As Roman said, that's because many of these big digital companies don't have any physical presence or active business in the country. And so this allows that market country to collect. It's based on financial accounts, global accounts with all of their complexities But that's really novel and we'll have to see if it works, I guess. Uh, The 15% global minimum tax, as Roman said, is going to depend on countries enacting rules in their domestic legislation, like Australia's tax law, to be consistent with a global framework that is set, like a global kind of structure. It's essentially creating a whole new legal infrastructure for international tax. And even though the immediate revenue impacts may not be terribly visible, that infrastructure, legal infrastructure for collecting tax on large global corporations, to me, that's novel and important. It sort of maybe takes us into a a new world in the future about how countries manage this tax collection and allocation.
1: You're quite right, Miranda. And we do have some precedent in accounting where, as you may know, accounting rules have been harmonised around the world with the International Accounting Standards Board. But that's a lot easier because the accounting standards is maybe a thousand pages of legislation, whereas tax is millions in certain countries. And that took about 20 to 30 years, I think. Yes, from a tax perspective, it's novel. But accounting tax perspective, it has been done in in accounting, so it's not impossible. But I just think it's going to be a very, very difficult and a very long process. What worries me is that they claim, you know, legislation in 22, starting to work in 23. That's the only fear I have. And as I said, 15%, well, what do you compare it to? You can already see in what's come out, there's there's different options there, carve-outs, et cetera. I can already see as, as an accounting researcher, companies are going to start playing around with all the different methods they can use to calculate this and that. So it's uh, it's gonna be a lot of work. It's gonna be a lot more work, for example, and with accounting harmonization, and that took almost 30 years. And and especially with the US. Problem is the US is driving this, and yes. 136 have agreed, but I think the Americans have an agenda, and that's what I'm trying to was trying to say here. They have an agenda, and they're going to try to push that agenda. And their agenda is to get their piece of the pie. It's novel, but at the same time, it's scary. So it's, it's, it'll be look. It's fun. It is novel, and it's going to provide room for a lot of research for myself and Miranda for the next <laughs> probably two decades <laughs> at least. I'd say
0: so. Well, look, in terms of that American pushing it down the way, I want to take you back to something you said earlier, Roman, which is basically that this is a problem of the US's own making, and now all of a sudden they're trying to claw back this tax income after you know they've let Google and Facebook set up shop in. In Ireland, with 12.5% as a corporate tax rate, I believe. Do you think that this system... It's less
1: than that, Toby.
0: Oh, it's good. Less.
1: They actually, in Ireland, they have special tax rules where even if you're a tax resident, you can still pay a tax rate of another tax haven. So it's 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 crazy. They pay like 1% at the most. Oh. But the reason, as I said to you at the beginning, the reason is if the Americans didn't do something at the moment... That one to two trillion that's under tax may have been taxed because you know France introduced a digital tax, mm. the EU was going to do one, so those one to two trillion dollars would have been probably taken back by the Europeans and other countries, and the Americans would have lost.
0: In, in terms of that, though, are the Americans the only real winners out of this type of a deal? Is America only do this for its own interest, or are there other countries oh, no, no, no. that have...
1: Australia? No, no, will be winners as well because. Uh, U.S. multinationals, in accordance with my research, their ETRs in Australia are like you know single digits, basically, if not less than that. And a lot of them don't even you know book revenues in Australia uh, because of the Pillar One situation. No, no, this is good for Australia. It is good, especially for the OECD countries. I would say, with the exception of Ireland and a few others, perhaps. That's why I think a lot a lot of countries have initially. Said okay. But again, you know, the devil's in the detail. It's it's how it's all going to be shared. Plus, we do have legislation. We do have legislation in Australia already. Mal, DPT, it's kind of already there to solve these issues.
0: In terms of this type of reform, we've had a lot of people or a lot of coverage about the COVID recovery, that taxation is going to be a critical part to rebuilding economies that are currently in debt due to the current pandemic. Do you think that that is the type of impetus that gets people on board with this type of reform, Miranda? What type of drivers allow people to believe in tax reform? Is it the fact that we're suddenly going to be taxing these faceless, multi-million dollar multinationals? Who couldn't get on board with taxing them, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that the Australian public would like to tax multinational enterprises more. There's something in that. Roman's research and mine would suggest that that we should globally be taxing multinationals more, that they have attained sort of uh, super profits as a result of global synergies, right, as a result of their global markets, as a result of digital transformation and the value that they have in, in intellectual property, patents and intangible assets and so on. Uh, As Raymond said, it's led by the US multinationals uh, over the last decade, which the US permitted to expand globally with relatively little tax being asserted by the US. And then finally, in response, we see this reaction from large market jurisdictions, highly digitalized countries, including Australia, although our population is small, we're a rich country and we're highly digitalized and, and tech savvy. And so these countries sort of saying, well, we, we think we should be capturing some more revenue from these highly profitable global enterprises. They're doing business here, but somehow they're not present here. They're not caught by our historical tax system. So practically bipartisan, as Roman said, we already have anti-abuse rules, the multinational anti-avoidance law, the diverted profit tax. They were introduced by a conservative government, right, by the LNP. Since uh, Joe Hockey was treasurer at the time when Australia was chair of the G20 in 2014, Australia uh, has on both sides of politics essentially asserted jurisdiction to tax multinationals. More generally, thinking about the COVID-19 crisis, well, there is a fiscal challenge, of course. Many countries, including Australia, have spent up big in response to it, uh, and that's been the right budget response to covid So, there is some concern about uh, improving tax revenue collection in the future. The multinational enterprises, while we should be capturing some more revenue from them, that is not going to fix the hole in the budget, right? It's not enough revenue. It might be five billion a year, it might be 10. No one would say no to that. Good addition to the Australian budget. It's not going to, you know, the budget's about 500 billion more or less. So, what we need is to in the longer term, be taxing domestic capital savings and wealth more highly. And we want to be very careful not to be overtaxing your average worker, right? Your average wage earner who uh, are currently facing a fairly high tax burden and also having to pay for services, paying for private health, paying for childcare, often paying for school fees or other infrastructure even, and of course, paying a lot for housing, How do you persuade Australians that we need tax reform domestically in order to kind of support the budget in the future? The COVID response by the Australian government and most other governments has been initially to reduce taxes, right? To relax collection, to give incentives to business investment. Uh, And that's probably the right thing to do, right, to stimulate business activity in the short term, But in the longer term, we need to persuade Australians, I think, that there's intergenerational inequity, that we're seeing sort of greater capital and wealth accumulation in some pockets of society who have benefited greatly from the last few decades of growth. And we need to do some redistribution of that to other people who've been less fortunate and to support public goods. So that would be my narrative, but I'm not sure how successful that will be, Toby.
0: We've drawn to a close in terms of our time. I did just want to ask one kind of final question about the two pillars. You know, we've had Matthias Cormann, who's the OECD Secretary General, say that it ensures the international tax system is fit for purpose in a digitalized and globalised world economy. Do you think that this type of new system of taxation that you touched upon earlier, Miranda, do you think that this is where we're going in terms of international taxation? Or is it more multilateral treaties, more of, of this sort of structure? Or is this just wishful thinking pointing towards the US basically saying, this is what we want. And hey, a few of you can come along and get some benefits as well.
2: In terms of the US, I mean, Roman's absolutely right that this current consensus is being driven from the US. But that the global reality is that if the US did not support global reform, it would be almost impossible to achieve. And we've seen that historically with the OECD attempts to counter tax evasion and avoidance by multinationals. So, you know, you kind of have to have the US on board and that involves lots of, of, of compromises. It is going to change some elements. So you've got to remember that both of these pillars, the global minimum tax, let's call it that after all, 15% rate, it would seem, uh, and the pillar one, the ability of of market countries where where you and I are consuming Apple and Google type goods to to give us that ability to tax the revenue, they are really targeted at the large end of the corporate market. It's really about large global multinational enterprises. And I do think we will see a continuing change as we go forward about how governments interact with large multinational enterprises. It's going to be a shift. We also see it in competition law, right? We see it in regulation and we will see it in taxation. And it will raise some revenue and redistribute some revenue between mostly rich countries. The reality is very poor countries are are not going to benefit much from this deal at all. But big market countries like India, for example, may benefit uh, in part from this deal. The bigger issue, though, is that it doesn't solve, most taxes are still domestic, right? They're still national, there's the sovereign base. That's really the future. It's interesting to hear Matthias Coleman uh, advocating this reform. Uh, I think that that's good. The next reform he is now advocating, which he did not advocate in government, of course, is a carbon tax. Uh, and a global emission scheme, and that's something we haven't mentioned yet. But that does seem to be the next important thing that we need to do nationally and internationally, to sort of shift our system into a, a new and more sustainable mode.
0: Roman, your final thoughts? Do you think this is well? I think I think I know your answer, but I might as well ask. Do you think this is the new world order for international taxation, or is it just flash in the pan? No,
1: look, I agree. I agree with Miranda. Two things. I think if we're ever going to solve tax avoidance, it does need a multilateral approach. We've tried unilateral approaches, uh, you know, bilateral, and for many decades, but you know, it still persists. So definitely, if this issue is going to be solved, this is at least the first step, but, but a very short and small first step because there's many more to come. And before it succeeds, I think it's going to take a long, long time. The second thing I agree with is my research suggests that countries that have tried unilateral approaches like we have with MAL and DPT, yes, as Miranda said, it's not going to raise that much more, even if there's some success at the multilateral level, like like with this global minimum tax idea, it's not going to be a huge amount You know, an extra billion here or there is not going to reduce our 500 billion deficit, which is what it's going to be in the next couple of years. You know, I mean, we have a lot more issues in terms of capital gains tax, negative gearing, superannuation. There are so many issues and what we call inequalities or inequities and so on and so forth in our local taxes, GST, for example. That's really where I think we need the reform. And both parties, unfortunately, are are afraid to touch it. But I think something else I just wanted just to finish off, it's to do with transparency. I think another way we can actually make these multinationals pay more tax, make these guys, the multinationals, report in detail on their tax activity. So you and I, all the consumers around the world can actually see it. And then, you know, we can tell Apple, we can tell Google, you know what, we're not going to buy your stuff. We're not going to invest in you unless you stop this.
0: That's all for today. Thank you to my guests, Roman Lannis and Miranda Stewart. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe and I'll catch you back here next week.